much. Please take your Bibles and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. Uh, For the sake of those of you who are visiting today, we have been working our way through Revelation for the last several weeks, and we come this morning to chapter 14. Uh, We're not going to read the entire chapter because there's too much here. We're going to read the first five verses, Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. The last few chapters of Revelation have been, uh, to say the least, pretty intense. Chapter 11, there was uh, this beast that rises up from the bottomless pit and wages war against the church. In chapter 12, there was the, the scary red dragon standing before the woman waiting for her to give birth so that he might devour her child. In chapter 13, you remember that there were two different beasts The first beast comes up out of the sea. He has ten horns, seven heads. He makes war on God's people. The second beast rises up out of the earth, performing great signs and killing anyone who does not worship the first beast. And and all of this, as we saw, is a picture of the spiritual war that we face as Christians. If, If you think that Christianity is easy, No trials, no difficulties. God's going to make your life a piece of cake. The Bible says something far different. The Bible tells us that we are in a spiritual war, and God had said that that would be the case all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. That from that time until the coming of Jesus Christ, every believer will face a spiritual battle. It's a war that all of you experience in your own lives. It's a war that we all see in our culture today. And and we read this section of Revelation and, and we see the spiritual warfare that we are facing in this world and we might wonder to ourselves, am I going to be able to endure this? Am I going to be able to stand Or will the dragon do to me what he wants to do to me, which is to devour me and destroy me? I imagine that that most of us, at some point in our Christian lives, have felt pretty discouraged, pretty downcast, so discouraged that we might ask ourselves, am I going to make it in this spiritual war? Am I going to endure to the end? 
That's why this passage is so important. That's why this passage is is so encouraging because it answers that question that we ask. What's going to happen to me in this life? Will I make it to the end or will the devil overcome me? We're going to look at these five verses this morning in three parts. First of all, there is the scene that John sees. Then there is the the singing that John hears. And then there are the sanctified that are in the presence of God. The scene, the singing, and the sanctified. And as I've been saying to you throughout Revelation, so often we make this book so difficult. We, We make this book so confusing and so hard to understand And yet God has wonderfully come to us in this book not to confuse us, not to make us frustrated, not to send us back to the Gospel of John, but he's come to us in this book to encourage, to strengthen, and to nourish our faith. And so here we have John telling us at the beginning of chapter 14 that he sees three things. First of all, he sees Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is is mentioned throughout the Bible, and um, depending on the context, it can mean three different things. First of all, it can mean the actual hill in Jerusalem. In the the southern part of Jerusalem, there's a hill. It's about 2,500 feet in elevation, and it's called Mount Zion. Sometimes the, the Bible speaks of Mount Zion in that way, a specific geographical location. Secondly, there are also some places in the Bible that refer to the city of Jerusalem as Mount Zion. Psalm 48, for example, says that Mount Zion is the city of the great king. In other words, Jerusalem. So sometimes Mount Zion is used to refer to the hill in the southern part of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's used to refer to the city of Jerusalem. Third, it's also used in the Bible to refer to the heavenly city. That's how it's used, for example, in um, Hebrews chapter 12. And and based on the context here in Revelation 14, that's what John is seeing when he sees Mount Zion. He's getting a glimpse into heaven. He's seeing a, a scene in heaven. This is heavenly Mount Zion. The second thing Jesus or John sees is the Lamb. This is pretty straightforward to understand who this is because chapter 5 has already told us who the lamb is. Children, you know the lamb is Jesus. John sees Jesus in heaven. I want you to think for just a moment about how very significant this is. This this world in which we live, there are many people who, who mock us for believing that God would become a man And that he would come to earth and he would die on a cross and three days after he dies, he would rise from the dead. And and 40 days after rising from the dead, he would ascend into heaven. Many people in our world will say, what silly nonsense. What ridiculousness for you, you Christians to believe this. But the Bible tells us that this is true. God says to us, this is true. Jesus is not in the grave. 
2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and now he is at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And since that is true, that changes everything for us. Jesus is in heaven. The world may mock us, the world may rage against us, The world may trample on God's truth, but that doesn't change the fact that our Savior is the great King. This is pictured for us in Psalm 2, for example. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, and they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's true. That's, that's been the unbelieving world's posture toward God all throughout history. Not just today, but all throughout history. Raging, mocking, rebelling. How does God respond to this? Psalm 2 continues and says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And he will say, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God is not bothered at the raging of this unbelieving world. God does not sit in heaven wringing his hands, wondering what he's going to do, wondering what's next in our culture, wondering how he's going to respond. The Bible says that God sits in heaven and he looks at the rebelling, raging, unbelieving world and he laughs. And here John sees this wonderful vision in heaven Very similar to Psalm 2, he sees Jesus who is the risen, ascended, and enthroned king. Now imagine that you were living in the first century. Imagine that you were living in the Roman Empire. Imagine that you were living in a time when you were told, if you don't say that Caesar is Lord and God, we may very well kill you. Imagine that. But then also imagine being reminded here in this beautiful scene that Jesus Christ is in heaven and he is the king. Shouldn't this affect us as well? This isn't just for Christians in the first century. This isn't just for Christians living today in China or North Korea or Indonesia or somewhere else where there is severe persecution. This is for us. Christian, you don't need to live in fear. You you don't need to worry that that somehow the, the world and the government and the culture is going to obliterate the church or overcome God's kingdom. Our Savior, our Lord, the great King, stands in heaven as the ruler over all. And he laughs at the Joe Bidens, and the Gavin Newsoms, and the Kim Jong-uns of the world, and he laughs at anyone who thinks that they can disrupt or thwart the purposes of God in this world. There is no human being who can do that. 
And so this opening scene reminds us right away that, that even though this world seems very turbulent and even though at times the, the world is very much opposed to and hostile to the church of Jesus Christ, we are reminded here that we are part of a kingdom that will never be overthrown. And we have the Savior, a Savior who is the great king and the ruler over all. And so John sees heaven, John sees the Lamb, and third, John sees the 144,000. Now, just like with the Lamb, we don't have to wonder who the 144,000 are because we've already been through chapter 7, and chapter 7 tells us who the 144,000 are. This is not a number that is to be taken literally. This is a number that is symbolic of all of God's redeemed people. The point is that all of God's elect people are here. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, Baptists, Reformed, imagine that. All are here. All are here. And notice what verse 1 tells us about them. They have the Lamb's name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Now you say, well, I don't want to go through eternity with somebody's name written on my forehead. It's not to be taken literally. Don't, Don't worry about a forehead tattoo. There's a point here. This is similar to chapter 7 where we are told that the the 144,000 were sealed on their foreheads. In in other words, having God's name written on your forehead and being sealed on your forehead are essentially the same thing. And, And what that is symbolically meant to teach you is that you belong to God. You belong to him. You don't belong to the world. You don't belong to the dragon. You don't belong to the government. You don't belong to the two beasts. You, Christian, have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have the name of the Father and the name of the Son written on your forehead. In other words, you belong to the triune God. In all of his power, in all of his glory, in all of his grace, and all of his mercy, and all of his compassion, you belong to him. Children, I want you to think about something for just a moment. You probably, if, if you were baptized at some point, you probably don't remember being baptized, if you were baptized as a baby. I remember my baptism because I was baptized when I was 12 years old, but if you were, if you were baptized as a baby, you don't remember that. But when you were baptized as the water was placed on your head, the, the pastor, whoever it was that baptized you, maybe it was me, maybe it was someone else, whoever it was who baptized you, baptized you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in your baptism, God was saying to you, you belong to me. You belong to me. And now the the cool thing is that every time you watch a child or an adult being baptized, you can remember that at some point in your life, God put his mark of ownership upon you. And he said to you, you are mine. Now that means that, that we have to conduct ourselves in a certain way because we belong to God. 
That, that means that we are called to live for him and, and to please him and to honor him in all that we do and all that we say because we are his. But, but what a wonderful vision that John sees here and what a wonderful reminder that, that we belong to God. And in light of what we've seen the last few weeks in Revelation, this is such an important and wonderful thing to know. Because I said to you at the beginning of the sermon, chapters 11, 12, and 13 paint a pretty bleak picture for the church. It's not looking real good for God's people. From, from, from an earthly perspective, it's, it's very chaotic. The, the dragon, the beasts, waging war. But here John looks into heaven and he sees the Lamb of God. He sees the King. He sees the risen and ascended Lord. And who is with him? Every one of God's elect children. John doesn't look and say, I see 50,000. He doesn't look and say, I see 100,000. He doesn't look and say, well, I see 143,999. Where's that one person? He sees 144,000. The picture here, the symbol here, this is the church in all of its fullness. Every single one. Not one will be lost. Not one will be devoured by the dragon. Not one will be separated from God's love. All are there. You know, there are going to be times in your life when you're going to ask yourself again, am I going to be able to make it? Am I going to be able to endure? The pressures of this life, the, the pressures of our triple enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they seem so powerful and so great at times. And, and we may think to ourselves, will the dragon and his beasts get me? Will somehow they allow me and cause me to fall away from God? I think many more of us have asked that question than we would care to admit. Will I make it? Here's your answer. All of God's elect people will make it to the end. Every single one. And Christian, that includes you. That includes all who have true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All will make it. This is not the only passage of the Bible that supports this. Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus says in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is greater, who has given them to me, no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. This is an amazing scene that, that God allows us to see here. In heaven there is the Lamb, and in heaven are all of his redeemed people. That's you. You will be there. So encouraging to us this morning. The second thing that we see in this passage is singing. What's being described here is this um, amazing, amazing worship service taking place in heaven. John tells us three things about this worship. First of all, it's loud. It's loud. 
John says it's like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. Maybe you've been to um, Niagara Falls before. Maybe you've been to some other really big waterfall. And, and you know that if you get up close to that waterfall, like Niagara Falls or somewhere else, it's incredibly loud. Get this, 3,160 tons of water flow over Niagara Falls every second. Six million pounds of water flow over Niagara Falls every second. Six million pounds. That's loud. And we know how loud thunder can be. I was um, working in my office a couple weeks ago when, when a thunderstorm came through here. Many of you, if you were living here in Ripon, you kind of know what this thunderstorm was like. Uh, one of the crashes of thunder was so loud that, that I literally thought that a semi had been in some accident on the 99. It was incredibly loud. Thunder is loud. Imagine the, the loudness of worship when all of God's people are gathered together in heaven to sing God's praises. Several years ago, I attended um, uh, the Shepherds Conference down at John MacArthur's church in Southern California, and, and typically about 5,000 men are present at this conference. You can imagine 5,000 men in an auditorium singing singing songs like a mighty fortress is our God, the church is one foundation, holy, holy, holy. Imagine the, the loudness of 5,000 men singing. That's nothing compared to what it will be like in heaven when all of God's people are there singing praises to God. It will be loud. Secondly, John also tells us this worship is lovely. John says it's, it's like the sound of a harp. Most of us have heard harps played before. It's typically not a, not a jarring sound like brass can be. It's typically very, very sweet, very lovely. The worship of heaven, John says, will be like a harp because there is no more lovely thing for us to do than to sing in response to God's grace and mercy to us. It is the sweetest music to our hearts and to our ears to, to, to know that God sent his son to save us from our sins and to give us life eternal. And so the worship of heaven is, is loud, it is lovely, and third, it is lively. Notice that verse 3 says that they were singing a new song. Now, is this, a, is this a proof text for people today writing new worship songs? No, it's not. Now, first of all, let me say I have no problem with new worship songs, provided that they are singable, that they are scriptural. But, but that's not what this is talking about. When, when you read the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, you'll notice that many times the phrase, a new song, appears Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, the phrase a new song refers to any song that is sung in response to a great victory of God. 
One such example is what we find in the book of Exodus. And so I would ask you to take your Bibles and go back to the book of Exodus for just a moment. Exodus chapter 15. Actually, look at chapter 14 first. Children, you, um, you're familiar with this part of Exodus probably. God's people had been in slavery and, and God brought them out of Egypt And Exodus 14 records where God um, parts the Red Sea so that that Israel can escape Pharaoh and escape Pharaoh's army. And and then God closes up the water again. He drowns the Egyptians. Look at chapter 14, verse 30. Exodus 14, 30 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. God had accomplished this great victory. What what appeared to be an absolutely hopeless situation. The, the world's most powerful army is right on your tail and you are headed right for the Red Sea. Hopeless. God won a victory for his people. And, and now notice what we read, very beginning of chapter 15, verse one. And Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. God was victorious, and so his people sing. It's a reminder to us, isn't it, why we sing. We sing because God has triumphed over our greatest enemy. And, and here in Revelation 14, all of God's people are singing this new song because the dragon and his two beasts have been defeated. The, the dragon's plans ultimately failed. His two beasts ultimately could not destroy God's people, could not destroy God's kingdom, and so all of the redeemed in heaven break forth in song. Now we look forward to that day we, we long for that day. What a wonderful day that will be when, when God has finally triumphed over all evil, when we are forever free from sin and death, and we worship God for all eternity. But brothers and sisters, even now, we have great reason to worship our God. We have great reason to praise him for, for who he is, and for what he has done for us. And that's what we've done already in our service this morning. We sang earlier, praise to God for who he is. We sang, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, merciful and mighty God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We sang praise to God for what he's done for us. He left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, humbled himself so great his love, and bled for all his chosen race. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And notice in heaven that only the redeemed can truly sing this new song. The end of verse 3 says, No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. The point is that no one will be in heaven. No one will spend eternity singing God's praises unless they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
Have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Have you come to Jesus Christ to have all of your sins washed away and to give you the right to eternal life? No one will be there. No one will be singing this song who has not come to Jesus to be washed by his blood. And so we have this beautiful scene. We have this loud, lovely, lively singing. And then we have the sanctified. God's people are described here in a number of different ways. And if you have your Bible open, you'll notice what they are. It says they have not defiled themselves with women. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, this almost gives us the impression that these are pretty perfect people. And, and we might say to ourselves, that's not me. I, I, I stumble and falter a lot. But here's what we have to understand. What, what's being described here is the, the transforming power of Jesus Christ. One of the benefits of Christ's perfect work is, is not only our justification, but it's also our sanctification. In other words, Christ will work in us by his Holy Spirit so that we will die more and more to this world. And so that we will live more and more to righteousness. This is the fruit of our justification. That's what verses 4 and 5 are describing, Christ's work of sanctification in us. A, a Christian is not just someone who offers lip service to God. A Christian is not just someone who at some point in their life prayed some prayer or walked some aisle or signed some piece of paper. A Christian is not just someone who attends church. A Christian is one who has been justified by faith alone in Christ and is being sanctified by Christ. That the Christian does not follow after the false gods of this world. That the Christian clings to Christ as his only Savior and Redeemer. The Christian's desire is to follow Jesus, to, to honor him with their lives, to obey his word, to, to follow the lamb wherever he goes. The Christian loves God's truth. He's not ashamed of God's truth. He doesn't back down from God's truth. John is describing for us the kind of things that, that Jesus will work in us and grow in us by his spirit. And, and one day, get this, one day you will stand before the throne of God blameless, without sin, sin free forever. Won't that be wonderful to be forever free from the presence of sin? So we have this amazing glimpse into heaven. The Lamb is there. Our Savior is there. All of God's people, all of the redeemed are there. This is meant to encourage the Christian. This is meant to strengthen your faith. This is meant to motivate you as you go through a world that wants to trap you, trick you, trip you up, destroy you. 
God gives you this wonderful vision. Let me close with just two very brief thoughts addressed to two different groups of people. First of all, there may be some of you here this morning or some of you watching online who do not personally know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're here because you have to be here. Maybe you're here because you're just checking the box. This passage is telling all of us today that eternity is is very, very real. Even, Even after you die, you will continue to live. And if you've not been redeemed by the Lamb, if you're not trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're just giving lip service to God, if you're just living for yourself with no real concern about the things of God, we're reminded this morning that you will suffer eternal punishment. Or maybe you're here this morning and and you're trying by your own efforts and your own good works to earn your way to heaven. Your good works and your efforts will never be enough because God demands perfection. I, I urge you this morning with the greatest sense of urgency that I can possibly muster to deal with the state of your soul now. Do not put it off until you're older or until you're less busy. Do not put it off until you're at a better place in your life. But I urge you this day to run to Jesus Christ, confess your sins to him, cry out for him to save you, and he will. He will set you free from the burden of your sin. He will set you free from the judgment that you deserve. And he will give you eternal life. He is a wonderful, merciful, powerful Savior. And if you cry out to him, he will save you. And one day you will find yourself in this scene singing praise to him for all eternity that he did for you what you could not do for yourself. Secondly, though, I want to address what I assume is the vast majority of people here, and that is the believer in Jesus Christ. I I pray, really pray, that this passage this morning encourages you. And I want to say just two very short things to you. First of all, This passage is a reminder that the spiritual battle that is the Christian life will not end in your defeat. You will not be overcome. The dragon's not going to take you down. His two beasts will not destroy you. By the grace of God, you will be in heaven one day. God's word guarantees it. God has promised to take you there, and he will. And secondly, 
there is a joy that, that we can't even imagine that awaits us one day. There are circumstances in this life that cause us to be downcast and to lose heart. There are things that make our hearts sad. But the sadness won't last forever. One day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we will experience a worship service unlike any service we've ever experienced in this life. God says, I will wipe away all tears from your eyes and death and dying and mourning will be no more. What a day of rejoicing that will be. I'm thankful God gave this book to us because in the midst of the battle and the discouragements and the heartache that we face in life, it's a reminder to us, King Jesus wins. And he will take us with him. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word today. Lord, for all of us, this is a reminder that eternity is real. It is a reminder, a sober warning to deal with the state of our souls. And for us as believers, Lord, it is a helpful encouragement that when the pressures of this life weigh upon us, when the burdens seem impossible, we know, Lord, that we are in your hands. And we are looking forward to a better life than this one that we have your promise through Christ that we will receive one day as our inheritance. Help us now, Lord, to press on. Help us to serve in your strength. Help us as well, Lord, to sing, to sing loudly to you, to sing lovely songs of praise to you that arise from hearts that are so thankful that in heaven we have a Savior who has paid for all of our sins and who is preparing a place for us and one day will take us to himself, that where he is, we will be with him forever. We thank you for all of this and we pray this in Jesus' name.